we talk an awful lot as a society about where our stuff comes from. We spend very little time thinking about where it goes. We have historically had this attitude, out of sight, out of mind. My hope with this book is to flip that a little bit and to make people face up to what we're throwing away and where it goes. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In this month's episode of the Restart Project podcast, I spoke to Oliver Franklin Wallace following the release of his new book, Wasteland, The Dirty Truth About What We Throw Away, Where It Goes and Why It Matters. It's an extensive insight into the waste we produce from plastic to paper to clothes to electronics and more. He shared his thoughts about communicating the massive scale of our waste problem, the importance of transparency and how we can make the solutions more equitable for everyone. Hi, I'm Oliver Franklin Wallace. I'm a journalist. I've just written a book. It's called Wasteland, The Dirty Truth About What We Throw Away, Where It Goes and Why It Matters. It's a chronicling of what happens to everything after we throw it away and a bit of an insider talk of the waste industry. And what prompted you to research waste in such an in-depth manner? For the last 20 years, longer in fact, not just in the UK, but globally, about half of all the plastics that were exported globally for recycling were sent to China. And in 2018, China passed this policy called National Sword, where they basically decided they didn't want to be taking our garbage anymore. And so they shut it all down. They stopped importing a huge number of plastics and various other kinds of contaminated waste. And all of a sudden, the waste industry was reeling about this. And I did a story about this for The Guardian at the time because I thought it was interesting. I've always been interested in the things that underpin modern life that we don't really talk about, we don't really see. And this seemed like one of the biggest cases of that that there is. We talk an awful lot as a society about where our stuff comes from, whether it's organic or whether it's fair trade or this or that. We spend very little time thinking about where it goes. And the result of that over the last few years, as we've seen, is we've got an ocean full of plastic waste and we've got rivers full of sewage and all sorts of environmental crises to do with waste going on simultaneously. And I think that's because we have this, or we have historically had this attitude, which is kind of out of sight, out of mind. So my hope with this book is to kind of flip that a little bit and make people face up to what we're throwing away and where it goes. So yeah, it's been a four-year journey, but we got there in the end. I'm just now waiting to hear what people think. And what outrageous fact did you learn during your research that motivated you the most? Oh my God. I mean, some of the facts and figures when you start getting to grips with waste are absolutely astonishing. So for example, we throw away 2.01 billion tonnes of solid waste a year globally. In the UK, it's 1.3 kilograms per person per day, I think is the official figure. In the US, it's two kilos a day. They're the world leaders in disposability. 5% of all greenhouse gas emissions is solid waste. 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions is food waste, largely because it produces a lot of methane. And methane is a lot more successful at trapping heat than CO2 is. So methane is this kind of huge, low-hanging fruit of cutting greenhouse gas emissions. So like as a climate problem, It's massive. The size of it is astonishing. A third of all food produced worldwide 
is thrown away and not eaten. Some people have kind of heard that statistic before, but when you think about it, it's kind of staggering because there's various studies into this and an estimate is that 28% of all farmland worldwide is therefore being used to grow food that is never eaten. And if you look at surface area of the earth, that's enough in hectares to cover the subcontinent of India. Wow. When you think about some of the big numbers, they are mind-blowing and almost difficult to get into context. But the number one thing that outraged me the most in my entire journey, and a thread of this book has been greenwashing and stories of people being either not told the truth or slightly misled. And we can talk a little bit about things like compostables and ocean plastic and all these kind of misnomers that we're kind of sold as part of our green lifestyle. But the number one thing for me, which shocks people, is that the national recycling rate, i.e. the amount that we all think we're recycling in this country, is not true. It is based on this foundational lie. And the foundational lie is the way that we measure recycling. We put it in the bin, get sent to a materials recovery facility, which is where it's all kind of sorted out and graded, loaded onto trucks or ships or whatever, and sent off to be recycled. And then when it gets to the door of the recycling factory, i.e. it goes through the front gate, it is ticked off, yep, that's been recycled. That's the point at which we measure it. We don't measure how much of it is actually recycled inside that facility and comes out the other side. So, for example, in the book, I went to a plastics recycling facility in the UK, in the Northeast, and their yield, that is the amount of the plastic that goes in that is actually recycled, was about 50%. Other places, you know, depending on the materials, paper and aluminium and stuff, it tends to be higher. You know, some places like the losses are like 20%, sometimes losses are 2 or 5 or 8%. But in some cases, half of what we're saying is recycled is not being recycled at all. The same is true of things that are being loaded on ships and sent off to Turkey or what have you. A lot of the times we don't know what's happening to it when we get there. So it's insane to me that we can kind of be talking about all of this stuff and the government can be like slapping on the wrist for recycling the wrong yogurt pots or putting things in the wrong bins. When the reality is the starting point of it all is that we don't actually know what's happening to this stuff. And I think that we all need to get to grips with that and find out like what's actually happening to our waste. Because until we know, you know, what are we all doing here? Almost every type of waste that you explore in the book, so like e.g. paper, clothing, plastic, produce dangerous byproducts. Is electronic waste even worse in this way? Well, it's tricky, isn't it? Because like everything, there is an environmentally safe way to process and repair and, and treat this stuff. And there is an environmentally unsafe way to repair and treat this stuff. The first chapter of the book deals with landfills. And I went to Gazapur, which is one of the largest landfills in India. It's on the outskirts of New Delhi. And it's 65 metres tall and covers about the space of about 2,000 football fields. And you can see it from miles away. It's genuinely like it looks like a mountain range. And you get closer and you realise it's a landfill. It's a dump site, really. And then I went to an equivalent one in the UK, in like in the north of England, and you can't see it. It's invisible. It's sealed. It's under these like landscaped hills and behind all these green trees. And it's very mechanised. And there's a lot more safety procedures. They've got all these birds scaring equipment and electric fences. And you just realise economic inequality is like at the heart of a lot of what we're talking about when we're dealing with waste, right? Like rich people get to deal with it in this environmentally safe and fair manner. And the global south overwhelmingly doesn't. Globally speaking, our recycling rate is only about 20%. 37%, I think, is landfilled or dumped. So we consider this has been like a problem we solved decades ago. And the reality is that the rest of the world is catching up. 
and the majority of the growth in population and therefore waste is happening in those countries where the unsafe processing is happening. Electronics, you know, I went to Ghana, which is a prime export destination for some of the electronics coming out of the UK and Europe. And it's a complex issue because, yes, there are communities in Accra and Ghana. There was a famous one called Agubloshi, which it turns out was leveled during the pandemic. They sent people in and, and bulldozed it to the ground because YouTubers and the international media was giving it bad press. But yeah, the reality is that processing that goes on there is very unsafe. Nobody's wearing PPE or protection. They're burning wires and stuff out on river beaches. And we know from academics and research and environmental scientists that some of the ground is some of the most tainted you'll find in terms of heavy metals and things like that. The same is true of South China, when it used to be a central hub for electronics processing. Places like Guiyu, which was the famous destination for recycled electronics waste during the 80s and 90s. And some of the early tests looked at lead poisoning, for example, among kids there. It is undoubted that there are a lot of toxic chemicals being treated. Then I went to a massive electronics recycling facility in Fresno in California. And it's, you know, it's cutting edge. It's all done mechanically. There are fume extraction hoods, state-of-the-art filters. So the disparity for me is as concerning as anything else. But yeah, we need to find ways to repair and process this waste. We need to find ways to do that because people in the global south in places like Ghana there's a genuine appetite for it. There's a need for it. A lot of the time, reuse is a more sustainable option. Repair is a sustainable option. But we also need to make sure that it's happening in a safe and equitable manner so that like people aren't being exploited at either end. Whether it's Londoners' waste being processed at Sevenside ERC or the West's waste being shipped to China, India and elsewhere, there's a big gap in our understanding of waste. How do we make waste and the amount of it more visible to the general public in the UK? Well, I mean, in the case of sewage, that's kind of happened for us. A lot of this stuff, which we thought was solved, is showing itself not to be very much. I mean, people don't love being misled and the anger and outrage that I'm seeing from people as they learn some of these stories is a powerful motivator. When people find out the truth, they tend to kind of spread the news and tell their friends and that's one way that we can all do it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's been some incredible work by some of our campaigning organizations, the likes of Greenpeace and things, doing reports from Malaysia and Turkey in order to combat some of the more irresponsible exportation of waste. And I should say that not all the companies doing recycling in Malaysia or Turkey are dumpers. It's a very complicated issue. I think that something that I find really helpful, and this is maybe a too simple an answer. In the world, there are about 20 million people who are classified as waste pickers, i.e. Their, their job is they work on big landfills or in the street and that they make their money from sorting through the stuff we throw away and picking recyclables out of them. And there's like in big waste-picking communities in India and in Brazil and South Africa and like huge swathes of the world. This is, you know, an economic class. In Victorian London, for example, you know, Mayhew and Dickens like wrote about the waste-pickers of London. So like this is something that's been around as long as we've had waste. There's something that's kind of interesting about these people who are like always lovely and really smart and like really capable. I mean, they could tell the difference between 43 different types of polymers and I can tell the difference just by like feeling them with my fingertips. Like so incredible technical skill. And if you go into the waste industry, like they tend not to use the word waste, they tend to call it materials because for them it's valuable. And 
I think that one of the first steps, a little bit like telling the truth about recycling, is like for people to understand the value in what they throw away, understand the value in a recycled can for the planet and economically, and you're less likely to throw it away. It's one of the reasons I'm really keen that they find a way for the deposit return scheme, which the Conservative government keeps kicking into the long grass. We find some way to make that work in this country. So the idea behind this is, and it used to happen and still happens in some countries, is that every time you buy a Coke or something, you pay an extra like 20p. And when you take that can back and give it back to them over the counter, they give you the 20p back as like deposit return. And the waste industry hates this legislation because they basically argue that it competes with curbside collection. That to me feels like a bit of a cop out. Like we live in the world where we can trace diamonds around the world with a blockchain and AI can be cracking proteins in like hours. The idea that we should still be relying on clipboards and like all these really rudimentary methods feels like a cop out to me and an excuse for packaging companies to continually pump out billions of unrecyclable packets every year. So my hope is that things like deposit return schemes will be a good first step. Right. And to sort of like expand on what you're talking about there, in your book, you write that e-waste is not coming to Ghana to be dumped. It's coming to be used. Yet plenty of non-reusable or hard to recycle products end up illegally exported to places like Ghana, while many other products that could have been reused in the UK end up being shredded too early. How can we strike a balance between those two elements? God, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because I'm really conscious that I don't like, and I'm sure I have used it, it's very easy to slip into using language like we're dumping our waste in Ghana because it robs the people there of agency. Like a lot of the time, there's a market for this stuff. People want these products. And if you go and you talk to some of the repair communities in places like Accra, all across the world, really, and their argument as well, our options are either we import used that we can fix and might have a lifespan of 10 years, or we're getting flooded with like cheap Chinese laptops that are really poorly made and don't last for very long and they break every time there's a power surge or whatever. There's a lot of complexity to this issue. And, you know, I met guys there who were using like these Dell Pentium 4 processors that they stopped making however many decade and a half ago and saying like, this is still really usable and big market for second-hand laptops, for example, is schools in the developing world. So we've got to be careful. The system is currently set up to exploit it. So for example, things like in the UK, to use a different analogy, there's this thing called the packaging export recovery note, which is you give someone a shipping bale full of plastic and they give you a recovery note, which you can then cash in with the government. And because there's basically no due diligence, people are getting rich off this stuff and stuffing the bales full of like dirty nappies or stuff that's just totally unusable. The same is true of clothing. Like I would talk to clothing traders in Cantamanto and they would tell stories about opening bales and people have put like slabs of rock in there to trick the scales because, you know, stuffed inside a shipping container, it's so easy to gain. The Environment Agency and those people are just not looking at this industry closely enough. There are people who need this material at the other end of the developing world. And there are people here genuinely trying to do their best to find markets for reuse and repair. But we need to make the system work for everybody. Same is true for clothes, same is true for e-waste. The destination is the same, but the intricacies of the system are a little bit different. But with e-waste, a lot of the stuff that ends up in the dump sites has already been used in Ghana for a long period of time. You know, it's gone there, it's had five years of use, and then it's ending up in the landfill. With textiles, a lot of what we're sending them is chaff. A lot of what we're sending them is like ripped or stained beyond wear and therefore can't be used. And it just goes straight from the ship straight onto a landfill site. We've got to have like space for a bit of nuance in the discussion, I hope. 
How does the work of right-to-repair campaigners in Europe and the US influence reuse ecosystems within the global south? Right-of-repair to a lot of UK consumers, people should care about this stuff, but it often feels like non-essential because they feel like they can take it down to a shop and, and have someone else do it for them. For the repair community in Accra, there is a massive parts shortage, particularly for a lot of these newer devices that are coming through. Some of the most avid consumers of this stuff are in the global south where the biggest market is. Spare parts and having ideally the ability to get like white label parts for a lot of these products would be a game changer. Every time I see like Apple locking cameras on new phones to avoid people fixing it, you know that that phone is going to head straight to the blender instead of someone in Guyana or Sudan or something who could get 10 years of use out of it. So it is huge for me. There's the hardware parts side of things, but there's also the software support, which is so important because if you lock software updates for a few years, you're ignoring the fact that the second life of these things often goes into the developing world where they're using versions of Windows or Ubuntu or things like that in order to kind of extend the life of items. So I'm like trying to tell people, well, it's really important that you continue software updates for long enough because you're supporting every time that's reuse, like it's lowering the carbon footprint of that initial production. So which is why it's wild to me that I see, you know, I went to recycling factories and saw brand new stacks of brand new TVs that hadn't sold at like whatever big supermarket being thrown straight in a blender. Like whole stacks and they're never sold. And they want to artificially maintain the price of the new product. Every time the new product cycle comes around, they don't want there to be old products still on the shelves. So if they can't export it or sell them off in the sale, they get trashed. And by the way, like every large tech company is doing this, almost without exception. It's an open secret in the recycling industry. Like you talk to Kyle Wiens and think people like that, you know, like they all know that this is happening. There was the case with Apple in Canada where like they did a, resell, a, a recycling facility because they were saying, well, you know, this is all brand new. I'm just going to sell it in the market instead of smashing this stuff to bits. How broken is the system that we're chasing the people who are trying to reuse and resell things rather than the people smashing up perfectly good product? Right. Whatever their motivations, the outcome is great for all of us. Yeah. And the same companies, by the way, are quite often touting their like fancy recycling schemes and their carbon neutral products or whatever we can't take any of that on face value like there's got to be some interrogation of how much of that is actually real and so i guess continuing on this line of thinking you write that wasting is cheap for manufacturers in the book and as such it is financially beneficial to scrap working unsold stock rather than let resellers sell it For electronics, there are specific must-shred contracts between manufacturers and recyclers. Can you tell us a little bit about these non-disclosure agreements and how widespread it is? Sure. I mean, the volumes that come through some of these facilities to deal with electronic waste is very large. A lot of the contracts are from kind of secondhand shops, charity shops who can't sell products, but A lot of these recycling businesses, some of the big conglomerates make a a very large amount of money, but some of the smaller ones and the middlemen don't make a huge amount of money. So one thing that is very reliable is big commercial contracts. So they sign NDAs so they can't tell the truth about what's coming through the door. We saw in this country, I think it was a couple of years ago now, but what was happening with Amazon returns going to landfill in the UK. You know, you were sending things back and people expect them to be sorted and resold, but they worked out that economically it was cheaper for them to just throw it away and sell new stuff than it was for them to hire people 
to unpack it and repack it, check it's all still working, you know, all of the, the messy logistics of returns. This is true in the fashion industry. It's true in pretty much every industry where we make stuff. It's built into the business model that returns are not worth the effort and it's just cheaper for them to smash things to bits and throw them away. We have in this country the landfill tax, which is a kind of a blunt instrument, but had a tremendous effect on recycling rates over the last couple of decades. I'm sure there must be equivalent levers that we can pull against some of these companies to try and stop this wastage because like you see the pictures and if you go into the factories it is just heartbreaking to see and do you think this approach will change as our resources are depleted and presumably become more expensive especially the critical raw materials that go into electronics i would love for that to be the case there are people talking about landfill mining for example landfill mining is likely to be a thing particularly for certain raw material certain metals the big mining conglomerates own a lot of e-waste facilities in like europe and other places the reality, unfortunately, I think is that extraction and like the colonialism that's tied into it is rapacious and gets everywhere. And like, if they can mine the ocean floor before repairing stuff, they'll mine the ocean floor and destroy the coral reefs before they'll let you fix the inside of your laptops in a lot of cases. That is changing. You know, like it's, it's amazing to see brands like Framework and stuff like coming along and reigniting the repairable devices because I think that that is encouraging other companies to do the same. The more pressure we can put on them, the more they'll realize that it became fashionable for us to have slimmer and slimmer and slimmer devices. But we don't want that. And like the research shows that people don't want that. They want stuff that lasts a long time and has bigger battery life and all those kind of things. And so that race for thinness has stopped and slowly actually phones are starting to get bigger again or like fatter. And I think that that's true in a lot of things. Well, it's accessibility as well, isn't it? Like if you make your devices bigger so people can read things better, it means that they'll keep them as they grow older. For sure. Such a good point as well about like different communities, different needs. And on the policy end, the EU is working on product eco-design legislation with current drafts, including a ban on destruction of unsold textiles, footwear and electronic call and electronics products. Is this a step in the right direction to stopping overproduction? I hope so. I mean, waste is such a low hanging fruit and not just for us as like societies, but for companies cutting waste helps them reach their climate targets, which are both being pushed by government, but also kind of big ESG investment funds and stuff now. So there's pressure from all sides. I'm really intrigued by some of that legislation. What I hope doesn't happen is that a lot of the cross border treaties of like shipping things overseas have historically been hobbled or limited by the lack of signatories from one or more big countries. If you don't get America and trying to sign up, there's kind of no point at a global level. My hope is that if we pass that legislation, they don't find some way to offshore the problem and send it to start building processing factories in Africa and everything just ends up there and being smashed to bits where we're not looking because that has been the historical pattern. Every time we try and reform a destructive industry like mining, they kind of pack up and clear off and go somewhere else where they can do it in the rainforest and where we can't see them. I think there's some incredible work going on within the EU, within various US state legislatures. I don't want people to lose heart because it's a really promising and, and kind of positive time. Seeing the speed of change. Books are very slow and normally laws are very slow. And when the laws are moving faster than the books, you know something's going right, you know? <laughs> right. No, that's a really good point. And I, and I, I think that's a good message as well like be heartened by the possibilities but stay vigilant yeah 
because of what we've seen historically. Yeah, and, and I talk about this in a book. Journalists like myself has some culpability here because we have a tremendously short attention span as a society. And something that happens and has happened over and over again, in the 1990s, Coca-Cola promised that it was going to make its bottles with 25% recycled plastic. And everyone said, hooray, and it was, you know, got written up in the New York Times and all those, those kind of things. And then a few years later, there was an economic downturn and they quietly cancelled those plans and didn't do it. And then a few years after that, in like 2005 or 2007, they did the same thing. We're going to do this recycling thing. And then 2008 happened and it didn't happen. And then in 2010 and then in 2015 and 2017. And you go back and for decades, every time there's a big pledge, what happens is they make a big pledge, they get a lot of good press out of it, people feel better, and then they quietly shelve it a few years later and they use like the economy as an excuse. That is happening literally this week. This week, like the packaging industry is trying to get out of the new producer responsibility legislation by blaming the cost of living crisis. So it's really important, as you said, that we stay vigilant because otherwise two years go by, a downturn happens, and all of a sudden we've lost all the ground we've made. Historically, the blame for waste has been shifted onto consumers with recycling used to assuage their guilt. But recycling won't solve our waste problem, as you've kind of been outlining already. What can be done to hold manufacturers and lobbyists accountable? Well, first of all, I've got to disagree with the central premise of your question. Okay, I like a bit of that. I think it's really important that we don't give recycling as a whole a bad name. Recycling has a tremendous environmental economic benefits. An aluminium can that's recycled has a 95% lower carbon footprint than one that's made of virgin materials. Plus, you don't have to dig eight tons of bauxite out of the ground somewhere in South or Central America. The environmental benefits of recycling are massive. Copper, I think, is 85% lower emissions per tonne recycled. Glass is very high. Paper is very high. So there are lots of materials that we use that even if they might not be infinitely circular, recycled is almost always going to be better than virgin. And most of the time, even when we're talking about plastics, like we shouldn't let the virgin plastics industry off the hook. What they're doing is worse than what the recycling industry is doing. So I think that's important to say. I mean, absolutely. It's one of the ways to do this. The word missing from the question is, but recycling alone won't solve our waste problem. It's probably better to say, you're right. You took the exact words out of my mouth, exactly. Like recycling alone is, is not the answer and not to go a bit old school in my answer. And maybe it's just me, but it surprised me to learn this a while back that, you know, the old phrase like reduce, reuse, recycle isn't just a catchy jingle. It's actually in order of preference. Reduce and reuse were like higher on the hierarchy. Like they're in that order for a reason. And so we've got to be talking about buying less stuff. One of the things I love about repair is that it gives you emotional investment and emotional attachment to the things you're dealing with, whether that's clothes, like me and my wife have been learning to darn and I've like sewn patches on a bunch of jumpers. You can get these incredible like decorative methods of like repairing clothes and things now. And there's whole Instagram communities online forming around some of these movements and there's some amazing work there. It's funny, I, I worked in a mobile phone shop when I was a teenager repairing old like Nokias and things like that. Just doing the simple stuff, screen replacements and number pad replacements and batteries. So for me to look at some of the stuff now, like my iPhone and, and realize how impenetrable it seems to most people, it feels like a backward step. To see the groundswell of passion and progress on some of these issues has been amazing. 
The thing that I found really successful, and when you kind of talk to lay people audiences about this, is like, I try and use the analogy of like classic car enthusiasts. They know their vehicles inside and out. They're repairing things, they're fixing as they go. And they have an emotional bond with the things that they own. But yeah, for sure, like repair and reduction, resale, those, all those things have got to be the first line defense against this stuff. While researching your book, you attended a restart party. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? And more broadly, how does community repair fit into the more global ecosystem of reuse and repair that you outlined in your book? I did, and I loved it. It was one of the first parties after the restart, kind of after lockdowns. And like the positivity and the energy, and also the expertise there to see that on display was so heartening and I, I went away and I've changed my behaviors like trying to fix my coffee machine and I replaced the controllers on my Nintendo Switch and do other bits and pieces like that. Proficiency and the feeling of ownership that it gives you is incredible. Since I've been there, I've had the retail groups launched near me. I live out in Hertfordshire. I've like sent my next door neighbor down there with like a toaster broke. There's like this word of mouth community that grows because I think I think a big problem when we talk about some of these issues is that People don't feel like they have options. You know, you feel like you have to go out and buy the new thing because it's impossible to fix. Or like you don't know who to talk to and you try and call up customer service and they just fob you off or they'd never answer the phone. And to give people the feeling of agency and be like, no, 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 there's a guy around the corner who used to be a designer for Dyson who knows absolutely everything and can fix it. And they realize how quick it is. And often you're in and out in 10 minutes or something and you're learning as you go like it's an incredible resource I'm, I'm hoping that we can kind of continue to grow the community and you know get schools involved more as i know the restart project has been kind of talking about because i think it's a wonderful thing and, and it's spreading internationally like wildfire so i really hope that uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't been down to your local fixing community yet get down there take part join the facebook groups because it really is like the hotbed of where this movement is happening and it's really exciting right to repair has been a groundswell of movement, you know, bringing in everyone from track to drivers to people in the car industry. So like, I do feel more positive about this stuff than ever. And seeing the change, even in the four years that I've been writing this book, like the landscape coming out the other side is entirely different to the one that I started. So it does make me optimistic that we can start holding some of the big businesses to account and stop blaming individuals because most of the time the problem is not is not with us. And the biggest decisions that we can make, whether it's waste or climate, don't happen in the supermarket. It's, you know, convincing the the companies, your mid-level managers at some of these giant corporations to care. We're going to find that we move the needle a lot more than any of us, you or I could do as individuals for sure. Right. And quite a big question. What would you like to see happen in the next 10 years to tackle our waste crisis? Sure. Uh, I'm going to give three very quick things at different levels. At an individual level, it needs to be by less and by better. At a kind of slightly larger level than that, we need to tell the truth. And this is true in all of the climate crisis, but legislation against greenwashing, and by that I mean punitive measures, fines and those kind of things for, for people being misled, whether that's things being sold as ocean plastic when it's not been pulled out of the ocean or compostable plastic bags or aren't getting composted. This world is full of these myths that we've got to kind of stamp out and for people to feel empowered by. And the bigger picture one, I do think that people shouldn't lose hope with recycling, but we need to make the whole system better and it needs to be equitable. My desire is like, I know, for example, that a lot of the big firms now that do pay into producer responsibility schemes 
all of the money goes to us in the global north, right? They go to our system and they're not going into the Ghanaian economy to help them with their landfills and their waste management. They're not going to the Philippines or Malaysia or Turkey or all the places where a lot of this product is ending up. And so we need to connect the producers with the people at the very end of the chain and make sure that like we're looking after them because this is such a global problem and there are such injustices and it always seems to fall on the poorest people of the world. We've got to help them first because ultimately like that's where this problem is going and we're the ones selling them the stuff and sending it there like we we have some responsibility so let's try and make sure that the system is just for everyone involved we know that it's hard to put the scale of our e-waste problem into perspective but oliver is fantastic at communicating the shocking reality of what we're facing It was enlightening to think about the new sides to reuse and about how the things that many see as junk but we know are valuable are being used by like-minded individuals on the other side of the world. Oliver's call for a just system for everyone is an important reminder of exactly what Restart are working towards as we campaign for a universal right to repair and for a more sustainable future. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the restartproject.org, where we've also set up a fundraiser. So if you've enjoyed this episode, do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications producer, Holly, who does the research and the planning for the podcast. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.